This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Columbia University Press, publisher of the Bearded Lady Project, a celebration of women who study the history of life on Earth, revealing the obstacles they face because of their gender, as well as how they push back. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-hosts, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hello. Hi. Hi, Kate. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> that always happens. I was like waiting for Medea to jump in. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting you for Eric. carpet? My God. <laughs> I do. I want a red carpet. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're just um, so alienated from each other these days. I know. We are. I know. And I feel like it's never going to end, but whatever. Well, Let's move on to the good news, which is the conversation we have today, Kate. <laughs> yeah, today we're speaking with Eric Cervini. His first book is called The Deviance War, The Homosexual Versus the United States of America. And, now, this book um, follows a groundbreaking civil rights lawsuit of a man named Frank Kameny. I had never heard of Frank Kameny before. Had you guys? I had, I think Kate had as well. I had because of just like learning about queer history for a number of years and making that most of my life. But he definitely doesn't pop up, I think, except in like, maybe, I don't know, Kate, like West Coast histories of the LGBT movement will include him. Yeah, actually, no, I hadn't heard of him before. So yeah, I guess he's maybe more of a deep cut figure. Yes, for Um, sure. No longer, but before he was. I guess I'm kind of a, a novice in general because I didn't know even that bathrooms where men would meet were called tea rooms. <laughs> Did you know that, Eric? Is that common? Is that common knowledge? I didn't. Yes. I, that was a, okay. I was. I thought that was a really fascinating uh, aspect of the book. Just this breakdown of the tea room etiquette and all the watchers in the tea room. And actually, that's where Frank Kameny got in trouble and how he lost his job, as we talk about, from some time in a tea room. Right. And I mean, this conversation is also very interesting at this particular time, which we get into with Eric in the interview, because, you know, we recently had um, the Supreme Court kind of ruled to extend 1964 Civil Rights Act employment protections to LGBT people. So, And that was kind of, in many ways, the battle that Frank Kameny, and many others, of course, but that Frank Kameny had been fighting for decades, right? So to kind of have this suddenly happen in the moment, and then also to be learning this history about the long stretch of that struggle was particularly poignant, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Eric Cervini articulates very thoughtfully and carefully you know, what happens next and how we understand this long history and this long fight. Let's listen to the interview. Let's do it. Today we're joined by Eric Cervini. Eric is an award-winning historian of LGBTQ culture and politics. A graduate of Harvard, he received his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, where he was a Gates scholar. He joins us today remotely to talk about his first book, The Deviance War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America, which explores early gay rights leader Frank Kameny's struggle against employment discrimination on the basis of his homosexuality. One of the early leaders of the broadly defined LGBTQ rights movement, 
Kameny's struggle forms an essential part of the long history that has recently resulted in the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that LGBTQ individuals are protected from employment discrimination on the basis of their gender and sexuality by the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Thank you for joining us, Eric, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Maybe we could just start off by talking about Frank Kameny's work and what he did for the government before he was fired. Absolutely. So Frank Kameny was not born to be a gay activist. He was born to be an astronomer. He grew up in the 30s and 40s. He served in World War II. And that entire time, it was his dream from the age of six to study outer space, to study the stars, and someday to maybe even go to space. And he started studying physics in college, went to Harvard to get his PhD in astronomy and graduated from his PhD at Harvard in 1956, which was the year before the launch of Sputnik and before the launch of the space race. So he quite literally could not have picked a better time to be an astronomer in the United States at the launch of the most formative part of, you know, human spaceflight and exploration. And so that was really the beginning of the end, though. He started working for the Army Map Service, literally mapping the Earth, which had not really been done to such a precise degree before, so that both missiles and rockets could go up into space and then ideally return if they had humans in it. And then within months of him having that job, he received a letter from the federal government, from the Defense Department, asking that he return immediately to Washington. And that was the last time after he was fired in December 1957 that he would ever be able to work for the United States federal government. And it was solely because he had been identified as a homosexual, as a sexual deviant. There's an interesting backstory to this as to why it would even matter, right? Because one of the things that your research draws out is that Kameny and others, you know, it was in many cases, especially in the military, right? We're talking about post-World War II, which as many historians know, was transformative for kind of forming a modern gay identity because you had Mm -hmm. kind of sex-segregated experiences and lots of people were able to pursue being gay in a way that they hadn't been before. So these were kind of open secrets, more or less. But there's an interesting detail that you draw as to why, under a kind of ruse, actually, suddenly the question about homosexuals as being dangerous for the government kind of emerges at this moment for Frank Kameny. Mm -hmm. And that word you use, ruse, could not be a better pick of how to describe it, because you really can't tell the story of the gay purges or what historians refer to them as as the lavender scare without telling the story of Joseph McCarthy. And many Americans are familiar with his name, with the fact that with the Red Scare beginning in 1950, with his February speech declaring that there were dozens or more communists or fellow travelers within the government, we all know now that those numbers were a fabrication. And he was well aware of that as well. And so what the homosexual menace provided for McCarthy and his Republican allies was that numerical bolstering. So it allowed him to say, well, it doesn't matter if these alleged communists within our government don't really exist, because guess what? We have also homosexuals in the federal government who are just as bad in the logic that they used 
was to say that if you were LGBT and you worked for the federal government, then you necessarily had to be secretive about your sexual orientation, about your deviance, because, of course, it was the 1950s. And so their reasoning was because you were secretive, that meant that you were therefore susceptible to blackmail by communist agents who could then use your homosexuality and say, we will expose you to your employer, to your family, unless you give us classified secrets. So that was at least the purported reasoning for why the government legally was able to begin the gay purges, which were occurring at the rate of a thousand per year throughout the 1950s. And so this was at a magnitude even greater than the purges against alleged communists or fellow travelers. And so the difference is until now, we really haven't been talking about this side of the 50s and 60s. And this book chronicles a story of Kameny, who is purged from the government, as you said. Can you give us an idea of what would happen to these federal workers when they were either identified as homosexual, accused of being homosexual, and purged from their jobs? Mm -hmm. Well, most federal employees, when they were confronted with allegations of either an arrest, very often it was for public indecency or vagrancy or lewd conduct because they were caught essentially having gay sex in, you know, whether it's a public restroom or a park or even a gay bar. Homosexual arrests occurred at the rate of one million estimated arrests ranging from holding hands to sodomy in the 15 years after World War II. Mm. And so as soon as the federal government learned of that arrest, and it was a very intricate framework and infrastructure of how these purges actually were carried out, ranging from the local level to the state level to the federal level, organized by the FBI, they were really the clearinghouse. Most of the time, employees would be confronted with these allegations, with an arrest, and then be offered the opportunity to quietly resign. And that's why actually measuring the purges is very difficult because we don't have paperwork most of the time saying this person was fired for being gay because usually, you know, if they had a good rapport with their boss, the boss would say, well, you know, here's what is going to happen if you don't quietly resign. And so we can only estimate those numbers, but most federal employees didn't fight back. Because, of course, they wanted the next job. They wanted to be able to go into the private sector or into academia or whatever alternative employment option they may have had without, you know, causing a ruckus and without it following them. And usually they were able to do that. What made Frank Kameny so unique was that he was really the first to fight back, not just at the administrative level, but beyond. He was the first one to sue in court, filing suit against the secretary of the army and saying, this is blatantly unconstitutional what you are doing. And he fought all the way up until the Supreme Court. And I'm glad you brought up the recent decision because Frank Kameny in 1961, after three years of fighting this at the administrative and and lower court level, was the first to submit a cert petition requesting a hearing for gay rights, especially for federal employees in all of American history. So what just happened was essentially the culmination of a 60-year battle that began with Frank Kameny. I want to get to kind of how Kameny would see this moment, you know, exactly in the ways that you're saying, Eric, as like the culmination of decades and decades of struggle in a way that I think for younger generations, including myself, is like harder sometimes to capture. 
But I also want to talk about like, so Kameny is also quite unique. And this came out for me, you know, I've read about Frank Kameny and Charles Kaiser's work, Mm -hmm. George Chauncey's work, a lot of that kind of mid-century LGBTQ history, pre-Stonewall. But one of the things that your book teases out, I think, is that also Kameny is unique in at least several other aspects, one of which is that he's incredibly well-connected, right? So Mm. he has this kind of Ivy League background, he's white, he's male. Like, I'm wondering to what extent does, like, Kameny's particularity allow him to kind of even envision fighting back in a way that Mm. I imagine many others might not have. Right. Well, what you just described was privilege, right? That is what he had. He had the unique ability to take his case to the Supreme Court, even though he was living in poverty. But at the end of the day, you know, when you look through his letters at the Library of Congress, there's a good chunk of letters that are coming from his mother saying, here's a check, right, to help you keep going, right? So it's very important to say, yes, he is a hero. Yes, he was the first to fight back. But the only reason that he had the ability to fight back were because of these other privileges and other parts of his Mm. life, which included, as you said, his whiteness, his maleness. He was able to pass as straight also. He did not deviate from gender norms at all. And so it's important to recognize that, yes, he was part of the vanguard. He was one of the first to fight back. But because the movement was then, you know, this early pre-Stonewall gay rights movement known as the homophile movement, because it was then formed in his image, because he then attracted other, I call them proud plaintiffs, other victims of the Mm -hmm. purges to fight back, to ally with the American Civil Liberties Union, all of those plaintiffs, all of these early crusaders looked and acted and had the resources that he had right? They were all white gay men. And so that has a dark side to it. And that's something that I try to put into the book is looking at, all right, yes, this is something that we should be appreciating and celebrating. But what does it mean if these early crusaders were all gay white men? What does that mean? Who are we leaving out? I also think it's so interesting because he's, you know, petitioning for the right to work for the United States government to possibly be working on nuclear weapons. And, you know, the, yes, the, the, yes. The, he does found the Washington branch of the Mattachine Society. But the early Mattachine that began in Los Angeles was a much more radical institution yes. and was founded by communists. So that. Yes that Red Scare wasn't too far off. (laughs) I wonder if you could talk about just the kind of diverging visions of equality and what these two groups were after and any tensions between them or any splits within what was becoming a gay rights movement. I was surprised that he was the one who coined gay is good. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to talk about that too. Absolutely. So we're all in Los Angeles, I believe, which is really the birthplace of gay rights activism in America. So Harry Hay and, like you said, a group of other communists and fellow travelers created the very first Mattachine Society with quite literally copy and pasting from Karl Marx and saying, well, you know, Marx was declaring that workers were an unrecognized, unconscious minority group that didn't know its own persecution and its own power. And he literally just translated that to the homosexual minority and really was arguing for a unique 
gay culture that was separate and distinct and proud, separate from the straight world. And so that brings, you know, just as we're still discussing marriage equality now and what that means, this idea of assimilation versus queer liberation was a debate that was occurring beginning all the way in 1950. The issue was, and this is something that other scholars, Martin Meeker has a great article talking about how actually, you know, if you are radical in calling for your own subculture, your own norms and values as a minority group that is separate and not hoping to assimilate. The flip side of that is Harry Hay in the very early Mattachine were secretive. They did not reveal their true identities. They all had pseudonyms. They were claiming that they were proud and proud of their homosexuality, but they would never do so publicly. They would never do so as their authentic selves. And so that's why you see this, I think, really discord and this kind of cognitive dissonance almost of saying, yes, we're proud of who we are, but what does it mean that we're not willing to actually expose ourselves? And is that really so radical if we're not embracing the public side of our identities and putting ourselves out there. So that's what I think Frank really comes into the picture and his true contribution was saying, you know, you mentioned gay is good. Historians have long identified that he was responsible for coining that phrase. What I argue is that he actually invented that phrase without knowing it beginning in 1961 with that Supreme Court brief, because the government was telling him that if you were gay, you were necessarily secretive and you were necessarily immoral. So he said, I'm going to prove that that is an arbitrary claim by making my own equally arbitrary claim in the legal argumentation of my Supreme Court brief. And what he argued was to be gay was actually a moral good. And he made that claim openly as himself, he filed the suit as Kameny versus Brucker. He could have filed it as anonymous v. Brucker. That was completely his prerogative, but he chose to do so openly. So I argue that that is one of the earliest iterations of what we now celebrate each June as pride. And he, you know, condensed it and made it a little bit more palatable with gay is good. But he did something that the early gay activists like Harry Hay and Dale Jennings were unable to do, which was he was able to combine this openness, and also this idea of homosexuality being morally good. He was able to bring those two concepts, which previously had been one or the other. After the original Mattachine collapsed in 1953, they went with assimilation. They literally had their own communist purge. They got rid of all the communists within yeah. the early Mattachine because they said, oh, if we're fighting for gay rights, we can't possibly have communists. But although they embraced their openness, they got rid of the claims of being morally good. And so until Frank Kameny, it was one or the other. And he was the one who brought them together and created what we now know as Pride. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Eric Servini, author of The Deviant's War. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. So today I'm talking to our gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman, and Eric is here to give us a book recommendation. Eric, what book are you going to recommend? So I'm going to recommend uh, Robert K. Massey's 
magisterial biography, Catherine the Great Portrait of a Woman. Wow. Um, so seems a little like maybe off brand for me. But, you know, I kind of like during lockdown, you know, obviously we've all been watching lots of streaming. So I caught both like The Great, which is on, I think that's on Hulu with Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt, which is all Mm -hmm. about a highly fictionalized version of Catherine the Great's life before Peter III abdicates and she becomes this incredible ruler. And then I was following that up with, it was made last year, I think, starring Helen Mirren, Catherine the Great, and with Jason Clark as Gregory Potemkin, that kind of picks up her story after the abdication. So I was like watching these two things and just getting like increasingly fascinated by the figure of Catherine, who Mm -hmm. I had actually first heard about on a a riverboat cruise in Ukraine, like several years ago. Um, Well, no, it was like this other, this like the only other gay guy on the um, river cruise was like obsessed with Catherine the Great. And he took me to the chapel and I forget the small town where it is, but there's like a little church where allegedly Potemkin's, who is like Catherine's apparently like greatest love, where his body is buried. um, Wow. Secretly. So yeah. So anyways, But the thing that I'm actually here to recommend is this amazing biography. Massey's writing is such a great example of history writing that reads like a great novel. And obviously a lot Mm -hmm. of that is about Catherine herself. You know, he's just an endlessly fascinating figure. She's German. She gets in this kind of weird marriage that she didn't necessarily want with Peter III. And then she basically makes herself, along with other people, one of the most powerful monarchs that Russia ever had, right? And catapulted onto the world stage in the latter half of the 18th century. And she's also like somebody that I think any of us could really just fall in love with because she loves art. She's like committed to enlightenment ideals. She has this one quote allegedly that's like, you know, she couldn't live a single hour without love or something. So she also has Mm. all of these lovers. She's just like a truly like bigger than life personality and just an endless fascinating figure. This sounds really good. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yeah, it's Catherine the Great, Portrait of a Woman, and the author is Robert K. Massey. Thank you, Eric. We've been talking to Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor of LARM. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Eric Servini, author of The Deviance War. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the broader context in which Kameny was sort of pursuing his his right to a job and, mm. and pursuing the this message of you know gay is good because mm. you in your book you bring in all of these other ways in which homosexuality is aside from this red scare is becoming part of a larger cultural conversation with mm-hmm. Freud either psychiatric literature that's mm-hmm. coming out of the public. There's radio shows. So what what's happening in terms of the broader cultural context and in, in the ways homosexuality is understood in the U.S.? Well, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the psychiatric front, and that was a big part of his battle of, of, of proving that to be gay was not necessarily a mental illness. Um, right. The mental illness lied with, uh, it lay with society. They were the ones who were, who were sick, and then that became known as what we now call homophobia. But I think the broader and more important 
part of the cultural context was the Black Freedom Movement. And that is what I think the, the book, if there's one thing that I hope that people take away from it, aside from the name of Frank Kameny, aside from all his incredible accomplishments, it's that every single step of the way, he got to gay is good. He got to declaring the morality of homosexuality in a Supreme Court brief. He got to even allying with the ACLU because he was borrowing in lockstep from the tactics of the Black Freedom Movement Mm -hmm. every single step of the way. The only reason that he was able to write that Supreme Court brief and essentially reclaim morality for his own minority was because he was watching what had happened in Montgomery five years earlier. He was watching what happened in Greensboro with the sit-ins, with you know very neatly dressed students sitting at the counter at Woolworths as white racist segregationists poured ketchup and Pepsi onto their heads and was creating a spectacle proving that actually the immoral ones were the white racist segregationists. It was not, you know, the, the, the black minority. And he did the exact same thing. He said, oh. okay, I'm going to prove that I am not the immoral one. I am being gay does not make me immoral. You, the oppressor, the federal government are the immoral one. And he borrowed that beginning with the very early years of the Black Freedom Movement, then, you know, moving to creating his own organization, modeled after the NAACP. Then he starts picketing first demonstrations in front of the White House for gay equality in 1965. He gets that from Bayard Rustin after he marches with a homosexual delegation at the 1963 March on Washington. And every single step of the way, culminating in Gay is good. Where does he get that idea from? From Black is Beautiful, from Stokely Carmichael, and from students across the country declaring that same fact. So that larger story, I think we take for granted that we were inspired by the Black Freedom Movement, but it wasn't just A equals B. It was every single letter in the alphabet (laughs) being translated every single step of the way. And you have to tell that story to understand just what an obligation we now have to declaring Black Lives Matter and declaring especially Black Trans Lives Matter because uh, you, you mentioned the, the recent success of the Supreme Court case. What Frank would say is he'd spend maybe a day celebrating and then he'd say, mm-hmm. okay, where does injustice still exist? Where, do, where can I now continue fighting? And he would say, well, fighting for Black trans lives in particular, I think... Uh, if he were still around, that is where he would uh, continue fighting. Yeah. So, Eric, I want to just 100% co-sign. And I think on that, I think that that's one of the things that really studying LGBTQ history shows you is how interwoven mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. movements are and how much, just to reflect exactly what you're saying, how absolutely reliant the capacity for something like an LGBTQ movement was on the black civil rights movement was on feminist movements was on even, you know, even kind of like all, all of those kind of movements. Um, Mm -hmm. They they fundamentally shaped not only the language, but the approach and the tactics of the Mm -hmm. LGBTQ movement. But what I wanted to focus on right now is to think about that this recent, you know, Bostock versus Clayton County, right? So this recent um, Supreme court ruling And just to kind of connect some of the dots in the history is that why has it been so difficult or rather such a a long struggle to get lesbians, gays, bisexual people, queers, and trans folks 
to have these kind of basic employment protections, right? You know, my line about mm. this has always been that like marriage is great. Not everybody has to get married under the current organization of the world. Everybody has, has a job, right? Like that. Right. So Enda and the failure of Enda was like deeply saddening and depressing. Um, but can, do you have a sense of just historically why that has been such a boulder to get up the hill? Mm. I think there are a lot of factors. I mean, you can't exclude just the, the the weight of the oppression and just how well organized it has been from the religious right, um, mm. from the Republican Party, and just managing to continue the sta- scapegoating of the LGBTQ plus community. However, I personally believe just from my reading of history, the large part of why we failed for so long to get true comprehensive equality for all members of our community is because we consciously, deliberately forgot about and excluded some of the most important trailblazing members of our community, especially trans Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see time and time again, whether it was Frank Kameny organizing his pickets in 1965 and making very clear that the only people who were allowed to demonstrate who could have their photographs taken for the Washington Post were people who uh, fit within gender norms, who were willing to wear a suit and tie if they were a man and a dress if you were a woman in the middle of July at 100 degree weather, (laughs) you know, protesting for gay rights. That held his movement back, right? The reason why Stonewall was so important was because it signaled that the previously existing movement, uh, the homophile movement that that Frank Hamney helped construct, was exclusionary. It did not include every single member of the LGBTQ plus community. If you were a drag queen or you were femme uh, mm. or you were unemployed or you were black, you had no place in the fight for equality. And that same tendency, even after Stonewall, I think there was a glimmer of hope in 1969 and 1970 where there could have been, you had figures like Sylvia Rivera who were fighting within not her own trans organization, but within uh, the Gay Activist Alliance, right? You had a moment where everyone could have been working together, but then you had discriminatory activists within the Gay Activist Alliance, within the Gay Liberation Front saying, we don't want you to have any part within our movement because you make us look bad. Because straight people dislike and are disgusted by you and your transgression of gender norms. So we're going to sacrifice you. And so that's why Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson were pushed out of the movement. They were fighting for gay power, not until they were excluded, until they were not allowed to speak at the 73 Pride uh, Parade in New York City, until they removed trans protections for the city rights bill that Sylvia Rivera had been arrested for, fighting for. Um, not until that point was there a fracturing in the movement. And guess what? That's, that city council bill that uh, activists removed trans protections from, that bill still failed. Moving forward in time, uh, you you mentioned, you know, ENDA and the Equality Act. Throughout the early 2000s, the human rights campaign uh, consciously removed trans protections from any sort of national legislation that they were proposing because they believed that 
to only focus on the rights of gays and not trans Americans would be more palatable to the Democratic and Republican Party. Guess what? That still failed. And because not only was it politically a failure, it was also on the movement building side a failure because you're telling a big part of your family, whether they identify as trans or somewhere on the spectrum of, of gender identity, that they are not really being fought for. And they're, yeah. guess what? They're not going to fight for you. I wonder how Frank, in his last years, seeing the evolution um, from this fight that he started waging, what did he think of, of how liberation had turned out? I mean, was he... Mm. I mean, because especially for people who spend so much time fighting, sometimes they they can become martyrs and they feel sorry for themselves. And yeah. it's, it's such a lonely world. Uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you know, his last years and how, how he evolved. Right. So my book ends in 1971. There is an epilogue that covers the, you know, the last few decades of his life, but really his prime time and most important contributions were in the 1960s. Uh, and he did continue fighting for the rest of his life, but he remained in poverty. He was, you said the word lonely. He was profoundly lonely. He never really had after, uh, you know, really one relationship when he was getting his PhD. That was it. Uh, and he really was solely focused for the rest of his life on discrimination within the federal government, which is valid, right? Like, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have been fighting for the employment rights of people who were able to get jobs within the federal government. And of course, you know, the FBI, the CIA, some of the more sensitive uh, uh, parts of the government continued the purges. Of course, Don't Ask, Don't Tell didn't end until the Obama administration. Um, and right now, I like to think that he would be fighting against uh, the trans military ban, uh, that, that currently exists and was put into place last year. Um, and that we have to believe that despite the Supreme Court ruling, there is going to be massive resistance at every level, whether it's uh, based on religious beliefs, uh, that, you know, we, we cannot mark this decision as, as the end. And so I think he was a little bit too narrowly focused on on government persecution, because I think especially during the AIDS crisis um, and, and beyond, uh, there were a lot of areas where I think his his brilliance could have been used. But I, I, I don't love to comment on it because it's it's you know, it's almost like hating on your grandfather. You know, they <laughs> they, they 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 literally gave you life. They literally are responsible for bringing you into the world, just like Frank brought our gay movement and gay pride into the world. But also he made a lot of mistakes. And, you know, even though we have to call him out, just like we would at a dinner table, you know, it, it, we still have to do it with respect. And I think be cognizant of the times that he was living in. But I'm, I'm hesitant to say, you know, he was a bad person. Uh, because he didn't fully adapt. Uh, I think it tells right. us a larger lesson of how we need to adapt now so that we can actually stay ahead of the uh, ahead of history versus being forgotten. And and kind of like your well for like women with their grandmothers sometimes you just wish you know, they'd had a little bit more fun. You know, 
I didn't get to enjoy the fun that you had because uh, their conception of the world was just so different. But um, well, Eric, thank you so much for, for talking with us today. It's just a fascinating story. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Eric. Thanks. We've been speaking with Eric Cervini, author of The Deviant's War. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 